where I lost all of the tissue in my left ankle. The bottom of my foot fell off. I'm Sonia Morton-Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton-Firth Show. Today my guest is Johnny Bohr, Army Reservist, founder of Campaign Force and host of the Veterans in Politics podcast. I don't, saying I don't hate, I don't hate politicians, I don't love them, I don't trust all of them. Johnny Bohr, sorry, I had to say that like that as well. I bet you get comments on your name all the time, but Johnny, welcome to my home. It's lovely to have you on my podcast. No, it's lovely to be here. Yeah, Johnny Bohr, it's on my Twitter handle. No, not that one. Not that one. Um, we have a couple of things in common and... The first one is you have an amazing podcast, Veterans in Politics, uh, and you're obsessed, like I am, with fitness. Although you're a crossfitter, yes, and I'm a bodybuilder, yeah. Fit. Yeah, there's a, a little bit of rivalry between the two there. Um, Johnny, what I'd really like to get to know is, uh, is a little bit more about your story and how you first, or where your passion came for joining the military. Yeah, so it was really like the growing up as a, the stories from my grandfather who did national service and then went on to the regular army and then joining the cadet force. The confidence it gave me from being quite an introvert child and all of a sudden this community of people, you know, playing with weapons at weekends, making new friends, the confidence that it found. And I just became completely army barmy. And so when I was 17, I joined the TA, as it was known back then, the yeah. Army Reserves, and stayed on in cadets. So it overlapped by a year. I couldn't get enough of military service. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. Army barmy. And so talk me through your process in the military. Um, when, did you when did you join up? So I was 17 when I joined my local regiment, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment. So I was very proud to join my local regiment. Uh, as I said, my grandfather had served in the antecedent regiment, the Royal West Kent Regiment. So it was really important to me. I was emotionally connected. Um, and as soon as I started doing a bit more serious military training, um, it actually went on to deploying to my first operational tour at the age of 18. So I went off to Northern Ireland, to West Belfast. And it was a really interesting time for me because it was when the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, was being signed. So on the day it was signed, I was actually on patrol in West Belfast. So... As an 18-year-old, you kind of were aware that there was this political dimension going on. Any kind of misstep that we could make as soldiers on the ground, interacting with members of the public could be quite, have large consequences into the peace process. And we were quite aware of that as 18-year-olds. Um, so that was my first operational tour. And I really, really enjoyed it looking back now. And did you go back on operational tour after that? I did. So we went back that summer for Drum Cree to the marching season. I was, uh, I was 19 by then, so obviously a lot more worldly-wise. Um, <laughs> but we went back for, to Drum Cree for the marching season to cover that. So it was an emergency tour. So we went back out for another three weeks. And um, that was really interesting in itself. Uh, but the, by the, that was in a short service uh, contract called an S-type engagement, where you could dip in from the TA into the regular army so the contract was coming to an end that I did get invited to stay on in the battalion, one PWRR, but I'd already got a place booked to university and sites set on uni. Um, so I went off to Aberystwyth University to do international politics and um, but stayed in the reserves. So I spent three years in the officer training corps. And so I was still soldiering at weekends, doing every exercise, paragliding in the summer, um, skiing in the winter. And again, army barmies, that theme that really ran through at university. So you joined the military then after after university? Did well, actually, that, is that where it went next? No, it didn't. I had failure. 
So I, I went off for my regular commissions boards and failed the medical for having psoriasis, which is a skin condition, and um, was chinned off essentially by the armed forces. So I went from you know being absolutely army barmy, that was kind of all I wanted to do, to the rug being pulled from underneath my feet. How did I mean that must have been quite a knockback because it's not, I guess, a physical condition that you would think could stop you. No. Um, with your military career? Yeah. I had to wave all my friends off to Sandhurst. Um, and it was devastating, quite frankly. And I had to find something else to do. Um, so I, I basically, my friends call it the wilderness years. I ran off uh, away from my problems and basically spent a lot of time skiing and snowboarding and uh, even did a little stint in Magaluf. But I still had this overriding sense to serve. Um, I My military career had fallen by the wayside, but be careful what you wish for, as hopefully we'll come on to mm. with my military career later on. Uh, but I found, um, I had this urge to serve. So I found politics um, as a way of continuing that, that kind of itch to scratch around service. So tell me about politics and your urge to serve with politics. Um, because I, I, again, and we touched on this before, um, military and politics, do they go hand in hand? Well, Clausewitz said that um, politics um, was, or well, sorry, war was politics by other means. So there is a, there's always been a link between war and politics. And for me, it was about service. I wasn't particularly party political. And so in my first application to get a job in politics behind the scenes, the same week I applied for the Conservative Party, I applied for a job with the Lib Dems. Well, the Lib Dems didn't respond. So um, <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> Do they always respond? And I find that really interesting because I guess I would have thought part of the passion for politics was with whatever political persuasion you were geared towards, um, having that passion to serve on behalf of the Conservatives, Labour, whoever it may be. But you say you didn't have... You're bang on though, um, which is probably why I was the right person to do it. So I went for this selection panel, for a two-day selection panel with the Conservatives to be what was known as a constituency agent, basically run an MP's office mm. in short and local government, running local government campaigns. And the fact that I wasn't from that mould, I went there, I looked around and everyone had been young Conservatives. There were people that were councillors in the room. And I thought, I'm in the wrong room here because I don't have any of this background. So uh, they saw something and I think that's, that's probably the right approach because I wasn't deeply party political. I had conservative values, I'd say, um, kind of declared that. In fact, it was so funny. I joined the Conservative Party the night before the interview because I knew they were going to ask me about it. So when they did um, and they said, oh, have you just joined? I went, yeah, I joined last night. Yeah, be integrity, be honest. Mm. But that was true. I didn't have that background, but I had these transferable skills from the military, from the streets of Magaluf uh, and from the, you know, the Alps in Val d'Isere, um, dealing with you know, difficult situations uh, and they saw that and they tested that and they saw that potential. So I spent um, the next few years working behind the scenes in politics for various members of parliament, running election campaigns from local government uh, to general elections, European elections um, across the country. And that was really the start of this passion for politics. And what about your dream um, with the military? What happened to that as you were... I think I learned um, life. Was that still eventually up? Was what it's like there? to... It was. I mean, it's still my dream now to be an infantry platoon commander. Uh, it's not going to happen. But it's still my dream. But at the time... Um, Could you not go back? Did you uh, try and... I did. So I, I rejoined. So be careful what you wish for. Um, so this itch was still there. Sadly, I lost a school friend in Iraq, uh, Tom Tanswell. 
Uh, and then a good friend of mine, Lee Roberts, was a Gurkha officer, very badly injured in Afghanistan. And that really shook me because I was having this career in politics. I was having a, uh, I was living in London, I was having a good time, um, very comfortable. But there was this overriding sense, and I'll be, oh, it's probably guilt is probably the right word, that I wasn't serving. My friends were serving. Yet you were serving, in a sense, you were serving our country, if you believe that politicians serve our country. You just weren't serving, I guess, fighting. Yeah, I guess it felt a bit missing, a bit missing yeah. of me. Yeah. So I went and knocked on my local army reserve centre and said, hey, this is me. I've had this problem in the past with this uh, medical issue uh, and expecting them to hear the worst. And my expectations were down there. And they said, oh, don't worry, things have changed. Um, and so before you know it, you end up somewhere hot and sandy. Um, after going through my uh, initial, my retraining again in a different trade um, within military intelligence, I then uh, ended up in Afghanistan. Um, after learning, I went back to school with the army to learn a, a language. So I'd gone into politics. Um, and then the day of the general election in 2010, I was mobilised into the regular army for two and a half years to go and train as a Pashtu linguist for Afghanistan. What is a Pashtu linguist? So uh, Pashtu is one of the languages of Afghanistan, right. uh, with the official languages, spoken in Helmand, um, spoken uh, by the Taliban. Um, the Taliban are ethnically um, Pashtuns. Though not all Pashtuns are Taliban, I hasten to add. So I spent 15 months. There was a need, a defence need, to upskill soldiers to be able to then deploy to Afghanistan with this linguistic capability. Mm. So I spent 15 months very badly learning the language. I wasn't very good at exams. Uh, but actually, I turned out quite a half-decent linguist. So I ended up going on Operation Herrick 15 and working in all sorts of roles because I was this weird kind of reservist political bloke. So I ended up working with local politicians in Afghanistan, helping them engage with their populations, um, rebuild school, uh, train the Afghan National Police, worked on some other specialist tasks as well. And um, I had a really interesting tour. Uh, it wasn't without its own pain. Um, sadly, we lost um, one of our classmates, Ant Downing, um, who was a squadron leader in the RAF, and that really rocked us as a cohort of linguists. Uh, we also lost from our um, where I was living in the, in the patrol base, um, one uh, Matt Thornton, who died on that tour from the Yorkshire Regiment. So it, it was a uh, you, know, you had to deal with that and deal with the daily increased threat around IEDs, uh, like we all did at that time. But looking back, it was quite rewarding. Um, I got to work very closely with the local population. I had the language. I was able to build a lot of rapport, a lot of relationships, and an emotional connection with these people. So, which is why the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was quite a difficult thing. So, did being in that community, that military community, was it everything you believed it was? How did you find it? Yeah, it was. I felt I'd been given another chance in my military career that had been taken away from me. I felt pretty bitter at the time when it didn't happen to me. So, the fact that I had this opportunity to serve again, and just the people that you meet in the armed forces community, it was a real privilege. And to be in a definitive time of our military history to have served in Afghanistan, mm. um, it's actually quite a selfish endeavour, if I'm honest, uh, because it's a, it was about what I wanted to do. It was about my service. Um, and you kind of have to bring your family with you. Uh, they have no say in that. They don't volunteer. You volunteer them. So they take on those stresses and woes. So back in the community was really important. Another ch shot of service was amazing. If you hadn't had that shot of service... Who do you think you'd be today? Um, I think I would not be as 
perhaps as focused if I didn't have that shot of service again. Um, I'd probably be a little bit even more selfish, I think. The the ability, the, the, the privilege of service and the people you meet and the, the things you see on operational tours in particular and the perspective that gives you is, is a real privilege. And the way you then use that in your day-to-day -day life, um, I think it's definitely made me a better person. And at the same time, hopefully I contributed and added value to the situations that I was placed into. When you say it, um, you felt like it was a selfish thing, I guess, between you and your family. When I see it as a totally selfless thing, especially when I speak to so many veterans, that they have this humility and humbleness about them, yet you're putting your life on the line in whatever capacity. You're a linguist, but you were there in a war zone, in dangerous situations, where, you know, the most dangerous situation I, I have on a day-to-day -day basis is probably crossing the road. Um, so I, I, I find that our, you know, when I look at our veteran population, um, that we owe so much and yet we don't do enough for them. How do you feel our government treats veterans? Um, I'm linking that back to your background in politics. Yeah, well, I think um, just directly in terms of that selfishness, um, I think it is, in some ways, yeah, the ultimate sacrifice is very selfless. But actually, going and volunteering for these things, are, as I've done, to go and put yourself in those situations, yeah, there is a payoff. Uh, but your family, it's really hard on yeah. them. Yes, so that's probably course, what I mean by course. the selfishness yes. of it. In terms of how we're treating our veterans, I think we're, we've got a little way to go, but the, the, we're making leaps and strides over the, probably since... Yeah, my hero David Cameron, um, introduced the Armed Forces Covenant and how we're starting to see that turn into real action. So it's, it, it, that was the vision. Let's but, talk about a little bit about this because when you came out, you were very active in that, as I understand. Yeah, so I went back into politics and continued my reserve service, but I, I went to work for a cabinet member, uh, Grant Shapps, who's now the Secretary of State for Transport, working on his campaign. And that was when I first came across the Armed Forces Covenant. And it really opened my eyes around the potential and values of veterans in business. That was the focus, about those transferable skills, values, and about how this population migrating out of service, of which there are about 14,500 every year leave, that corporates were lapping up. And the vehicle was the Armed Forces Covenant. That was just the, the enabler. Okay, but it's actually the programs within these organisations where the real work was happening and the benefit to, to UK PLC. I, I think it's a, a, a tremendous initiative. Um, I've, I've been um, not involved, but I've known of the Covenant and, and sort of what they do for businesses. And it's, uh, yeah, it is, it is fantastic. If, if we could just do a little bit more, it's the more yeah. and more we can do. Um, I want to sort of take a, a little bit of a divert now, um, Johnny, because you had um, something that did sort of change your life that happened um, quite sort of quite recently. Um, where you suffered, and, and I wouldn't, if you're okay talking about yeah. that, I think this is was quite an interesting um, thing for my audience who have suffered traumas um, and, and me other mental health issues and how that relates. Yeah, sure. So, like, Hit 40, um, I've heard you talk about this as well, how that kind of definitive moment of hitting 40, everything was going great. What do you mean 40? Uh, 20, please. <laughs> Um, but I had that kind of you know, moment of like, we'd been on a sort of nice holiday to Canada. We'd got back, my wife and I, uh, things were going fantastically. And then a week after we were getting back, I was going on a routine visit to a hospital 
um, five minutes from home on my Harley Davidson and a vehicle hit me from the side. Um, at the time, I thought I'd just broken my leg, but it actually transpired that I'd had, very similar to an IED injury, it's called a D-glove, where I lost all of the tissue in my left ankle, the bottom of my foot fell off, it went right to the front of my foot. Oh my God, it actually fell, do you remember, yeah. were you It was all encased in my boot, I was conscious the whole time. You were conscious the whole yeah. time, so with the pain, because a lot of people black out with the pain. I was, I was conscious the whole time, but I had this overriding sense that I didn't have a right to be in any pain, because as far as I was concerned, I was looking down, I'd just broken my leg, it all looked fine, because it was all cased in my, in my boot. Um, it was only when they took my boot and my sock off, they realised the severity of my injury. I'd severed an, an artery, my tendons had flailed up my leg, my arm was also stuck in the rear wheel of my motorcycle, where I had to be physically cut out by the fire brigade. And I was stuck for a period of time in the most excruciating pain. I'd done a bit of work with limbless veterans in, through Blesma. I've got a lot of friends who are amputees. Uh, but so I had this, and my nephew has a, a life-changing injury, injury uh, condition with his leg. So I just, at the time, was trying to channel them, thinking, why am I in this pain? They've been in a lot more pain. You've just broken your leg. I hadn't just broken my leg. Um, what resulted? Was it was it at night? Could you see anything? It was in daytime. Lovely blue sunny sunny sky. I, could, I was there on my own, stuck on my motorbike. And you could see your. I couldn't see it. It was all in my boot. I couldn't see, and it was all the impact had completely removed everything recognisable around my foot. Um, and as I said, the bottom of my foot fell off as well in terms of the the sole of your foot. Do you remember the pain? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and this is something that I've revisited through EMDR therapy in order to deal with that trauma. Um, but what resulted was a four week stay in hospital at University Hospital in Coventry. Um, Mr. David Wallace, my surgeon, uh, who's become my best mate over the last three years. Um, uh, I've then had six surgeries in total under general anaesthetic. I've dealt with a infection while I was back in hospital for five days. Again, looking at limb loss. Um, a near limb loss, but thanks to the wonders of the NHS and Mr. David Wallace, they removed the quad and, and all the tissue and skin from my right leg and rebuilt essentially my foot. Oh so, my God. I mean, you're sitting here, you've, you've got two feet. Yeah. Um, you, and you let you went through all of that. How, yeah. What did it, did you come to the moment where you thought you may lose a limb and what did that feel I like? I had that conversation with one of my surgeons and had to go through that 50-50 conversation. It was just going to go one or two ways. Um, but option two, which I went for, was to rebuild the thing. It would require some commitment from me in terms of that rehabilitation and commitment to getting better. So I was, I was kind of at peace with that. I had quite a lot of knowledge around that. What I didn't really prepare for was the mental health injury. Um, that was the bit that really snuck up upon me. Tell me about the mental health injury. Um, I guess it started to physically, when you're starting to put on weight and not being able to do fitness, when you're starting to be isolated because you're not able to physically get out of the house, when you're not enjoying the outdoors on a daily basis, when you're not working, when you lose your purpose, eventually all of that stuff builds up and up and up and, and spills over. So for me, my behaviours started to, I wasn't looking after myself, I wasn't, you know, the way I dressed, the, the way I would avoid things, avoid trauma, avoid myself, not communicate. Uh, eventually, I got help with that. Being um, ex-military uh, um, and, and known veterans, I'm sure you know a lot of veterans mm. that, that have suffered from PTSD. Did you recognise those signs within yourself? Not at the time. I didn't really have, I mean, I've subsequently been diagnosed with clinical PTSD. Um, but I didn't really recognise that. I was just a bit sad. 
but the fact that I'd done a fair bit of podcasts, amazing podcasts, to be able to build up my knowledge. Little did I know, my commute down to London when I was working at the MOD, uh, listening to podcasts would equip me so well for when it really happens. Also, listening to fo- uh, reading Fox's book, Battle Scars, Jason Fox, the way that he spoke about his trauma. When it came, someone asked me the question in hospital, did I need any assistance for my mental health? I instantly knew the answer to that because I'd recognised signs and symptoms within what I'd read and listened to. What were the signs and symptoms? Flashbacks. I'd never had those in my life. Um, so actually reliving trauma whilst you're either awake or asleep is a really weird thing, but it does very visceral. Physically experiencing pain, even though you come around from that and I'm not in pain, you know, whether I'd be sedated. But you could feel the I pain. I could physically feel it and experience that moment of the point of contact of the injury. So I knew that was not right. That was not normal. So that was really the main, that was at that stage, the sign and symptom. So it's quite, quite transactional. That's happening. Need help. But later on, when I got home, it was far more subtle. It was creeping up. The behaviours, the you know, drinking a little bit too much, not well, I was getting drunk, but habitually drinking. Did your wife notice anything? Yeah. Did she sort of say? Yeah, she did. And I think it was having a bit of strain on us both. She was there really digging out blind, looking after me. Mm-hmm. But you could see, you know, there was things that I was... She, in, at one point, she literally pushed me in the wheelchair down to the river. Not that she was going to throw me in. But to get me, because she knew I loved down by the river and the outdoors, and I was grumpy. I didn't want to go. I just wanted to stay indoors. So she was really battling for that to get me outdoors again. Mm. So she certainly did. Luckily, I had the insurance company to pick up the pieces and get me into into some therapy. So I had two rounds of cognitive behavioural therapy that addressed those behaviours, the toolbox to cope with those in order to avoid that situation. Amazing. Um, But then dealing with the root cause of trauma, that required a little bit more support. So through Op Courage, um, which is the NHS Veterans Mental Health Programme, I reached out for some more help when I was in a low point um, and got EMDR therapy that really deals and relives the trauma what under is, control. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of EMDR therapy, but for people that haven't heard of EMDR therapy... So people describe some kind of voodoo magic. Um, essentially, you're holding some vibrating maggot, ma- magnet things in your hands as it goes, pulsates... And you're guided through your trauma and you kind of score your trauma as you're going through. And eventually you go through this thought process under guidance to really then revisit that and have pauses along the way. And eventually it kind of reprograms where you're filing your trauma. Mm. Um, So it kind of resets that moment when you have that flash of trauma and it files it uncontrolled um, to a more controlled under guidance with a professional. And for me, that's been critical in handling um, my the actual root cause of that trauma in the first place of the accident. Um, and if you look back now, are there things that you do now that will help you through your, if you have flashbacks, do you still have them? As I've never bit? had, I've had a close, I had a panic attack um, on a train, uh, which is close to a flashback as I, as I got. Um, but yeah, I know I can see when I'm getting a bit of a sad on, uh, as, as it were. <laughs> uh, fitness has been fundamental for me. So I found CrossFit. Yeah. Uh, so Shire Fit, which is my local CrossFit box, um, and the guidance of Andrew and Jake, um, getting into that community, habitually doing fitness, um, and just, uh, it's been key. Not only do you look and, and, and feel better, but the mental health side of it, the community side of it, has been amazing. So fitness has been key. And doing fitness for the first time for me, not because of the uniform, but doing it for me. For you, yeah. It's been different. And enjoying it, enjoying fitness, trying new things like gymnastics. Yeah, you know, being the fat kid at school, never, never do like 
getting on the Olympic rings and going upside down, handstands, that confidence, the side of it, I absolutely love it and enjoy it. As you've already... Yeah, 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 absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Finally, I just want to get on to talk a little bit about um, Campaign Force and your mission there. So tell me about Campaign Force and what is your mission behind so, that? Campaign Force's mission is to inspire, train and coach members of the armed forces to stand up and serve again. Um, basically... I love that. Can <laughs> we just repeat that? Stand up and serve again. What does that mean? Well, little did I, it mean literally standing up and serving again with my injury, <laughs> but it has done. But what it means for me is, is about this belief that our politics can and will be better. I'll be on, I've worked with a lot of politicians, probably 600 local government candidates, several MPs, members of the European Parliament. Some are amazing. Um, Grant Shapps was a brilliant MP to work for, for example. But there's, there's a lot of crap. Um, in local government, there are 20,000 uh, local government reps. Some of our MPs quite simply lack the minerals, values and standards to be MPs. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, saying I don't hate, I don't hate politicians. I don't love them. I don't trust all of them. So I think that's what you just said there about trusting politicians. I'd say that's one thing, certainly I and probably a lot of people that um, when they think about government and politicians, it's like I just don't trust them would come to mind. But people trust their armed forces through that lived experience, yes. we've been tested. Yeah. And it's those transferable values, skills and behaviours that I want to bring to politics. So I set it up because I saw a problem from my own experience and it's cross-party. I work cross-party. Um, I've got great relationships. I'm no longer a member of a party. I'm politically agnostic. So through a series of workshops, webinars and relationships, I'm starting to inspire people to actually think about standing up to serve again. The podcast Veterans in Politics has been one element of that. And the MPs that I've, there are 50 MPs with a military background. I use those uh, stories to really inspire people in local government. I've interviewed the baby of the house in Australia, who's an Afghan veteran. I've interviewed an American veteran. I've got a Canadian veteran. I've interviewed double amputee. Um, so there's lots of inspirational stories through that storytelling to get people to stand up and serve again. So I've, I've identified an issue. I think politics can and should be better. Let's create a pathway. When I worked at the MOD, businesses were doing it, lapping up those transferable skills and values. We can do it in public service too, because we can trust our politicians again. Let's not blame the politics. Let's blame the people behind the politics. Don't blame the parties. It's the people that are going into that. I, I completely agree, because that's, that's what everything's about, isn't it? It's actually the person. How do you think government would be with a majority vet, let's say, there were more, more, much more veterans in our government. How do you think the state of our country would be with more veterans? We do quite well in government it's, itself, um, particularly MOD, Secretary of State is a veteran, for example, in Secretary of State for Defence. So we're doing quite well there. I just think we need to mix it up a bit. So other areas of society too, that have a service-led people, it could be the NHS, it could be the police force, those that have service in their DNA. And I think the armed force is one element of it. The key thing is local government. Local government who set your council tax rates, your business rate precept, um, those, your schooling policy, your roads, they're just not good enough. I'm really sorry, and if anyone is, does know me from that experience, I'm not necessarily talking about you, but some of you I am. You're just not good enough, some of you people. So we need better people in local government. If we get veterans serving in local government, veterans will be more visible in communities once again. And that is going to create a better it. understanding of our veteran community at the same time. 
because there's no better investment by putting yourself on the ballot paper and saying, vote for me. This is part of my back background. These are my values. This is what I believe in. Well, it's a bit like walking the walk, isn't it? If you say you don't agree with something, well, stand up and do something about it. And this is your opportunity to do something about it. If a veteran is interested, Johnny, in finding out about a career in politics, but doesn't know where to start, how would they go about it? Well, I run Insight Days so they can come along. I will lay on the whole journey. People that are bringing speakers from that have been special advisors, working behind the scenes of politics, local government councillors, MPs. These are the type of people that are coming to share their story with you, the veterans community. It doesn't matter if you haven't got a political persuasion at this stage or if you feel particularly strongly. I've got relationships with all the parties. I will help you on that journey. But I won't tell you which party to go for. I'm a community interest company. That's not my bag. But I'll give you the skills. I'll give you the inspiration. And I'll set you the contacts in order to stand up and serve again on your path. I love it. Johnny, my final question, and we've gone through this so fast, I feel like, I feel like we could do this all again. Um, knowing what you know now um, and where your life has gone through all the myriads, through serving, not being able to, going into politics, having a life-changing accident, what would you tell your younger self knowing what you know now? Not wait for trauma. Um, Probably trauma has been the thing that's been the, the definitive moment for me that has made me realise and give me some perspective and some clarity in amongst all of the myths. Trauma has been, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't have wished it to have happened, but it did happen. So that's been the thing that has given me that clarity. So don't wait for trauma. Um, don't worry about the expectations you set on yourself. Uh, you'll work it out in the end. Uh, the, the, you know, fam you remember your values. Your family values are really important. The military values—that's a good foundation, and you'll eventually find your way. But I've had to wait for trauma to work all that out. That's been my initiation into life. Uh, but I wouldn't have wished that, and uh, certainly wouldn't have wanted to happen. But it has. Deal with it. Let's use it to advantage, and you know, hopefully, make our politics a better place. Johnny Ball, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. It's been wonderful having you here. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday, so hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.